holding a grudge against my dog. If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to turn to Esther chapter 2, verses 21. Or we're going to be looking at verse 20, uh, chapter 2, verse 21, all the way to chapter 3, verse 15. And uh, like Cliff said, if you're new here and you have children from a grade, age, what is it? Age 6 to what? Age 3 to 6, sorry. Uh, you can go downstairs and they have children's church for you. If you're new here, uh, we you're just joining us as we're going through a series on the book of Esther. And the reason that we're going through the series on the book of Esther is because I really want you to know and come out the other side of our series learning that even when God is silent, even when he's not, he's not obviously present, he's still working to be your guardian, he's still protecting you, he's still moving you. It's, um, I don't know if you caught that song that we sang earlier, that he is sovereign over us. And what I want you to see is that even though he's never, God is never mentioned in this book once, he's still sovereign over the issues um, that are going on. So as an uh, introduction, I, I, I promise I won't do this too, too much, but I want a little bit of discussion. So what I'd like you to do is I'd like you to turn around uh, find someone, maybe your spouse or your kids or whatever, and I want you to think of a time in your life when you knew you were in the wrong and someone forgave you, okay? So uh, it really helps if you pick probably the most significant example you can think of, and I'm not going to get you to share it, so don't worry about that, right? There's none of that. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to pick a time in your life where you knew you were wrong and you needed, and someone forgave you. And then I just want you to share either or of these questions uh, in the next 30 seconds. What difference did being forgiven make in your life? And what difference did you suspect and made in the one who forgave you? Ready? One, two, three, talk. Go. Think about a time when... You needed forgiveness, and what difference did it make in your life? So I don't, I don't, I don't, you don't need to get too deep, but I was wondering if one or two you would be willing to share, not specifically what happened, but what difference did being forgiven make in your life? Did any, does anyone want to take a, 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 a risk and share with us? How did it feel when you were forgiven? Peace. Brings peace. Anyone else? Freedom. Freedom. Matt. Were you, have you ever been wrong in your entire life? Yeah? How did it feel when you were forgiven? Okay. It made some great, it made you more gracious. Gracious. Okay, someone answer the second question for me. What do you, 
What difference do you suspect it made in the one who forgave you? A little bit of a harder question. When they forgave you, what difference did you think it made in their life? I'm going to stand on the platform because I'm going to fall down. A little bit of a harder question, eh? Well, here, I want you to think about that. I'll give you one more question that kind of relates to what we're talking about. And I kind of like, without looking at your phone, I'd like you to answer this question out loud. Do you think that there is a difference between a resentment and a grudge? Resentment and a grudge. Do you think that there's a difference between uh, resentment and a grudge? Hands up if you think there's no difference at all. Okay, a couple. How many of you think that there is a difference? Okay, what is the difference? Spelling. <laughs> and that's why I need to ask your forgiveness. <laughs> okay, anyone else? It's going to come up a lot, actually, because I spelled it wrong the entire time. Anyone else? Okay. All right. Well, I want you to keep that in mind as we look at our story today. And uh, if you've been following along, we've been looking at the story of Esther. And uh, today, specifically, I've titled this message, An Escalation of Evil. And really, what we're going to learn about today is the heart of the conflict of the book of Esther. Like, what really is the main issue, the main problem that needs to be worked out here we're going to look at it and uh, figure out what's going on. So in case, you, uh, in case you're new and you're just a little bit lost through the book of Esther, Esther revolves around four characters. It's uh, King Hazarus, King Queen, Queen Esther, Mordecai, and a guy named Haman who we will learn about today. So just to recap so you know what's happened so far, because it's been a little while since we've uh, looked at Esther, basically this is the story so far, is that the king of Persia had lost his wife over his wife's refusal to display her beauty in front of intoxicated men. So he gets angry and he kind of says, I don't want to see you anymore. And he gets angry for about four years. After about four years of anger, the king actually is lonely and misses his wife. But instead of reconciling, he goes out and he finds a new wife and he throws a beauty pageant and he invites all these women through all over the country to come and he basically chooses the best, the one he likes the most. And that's how we find Queen Esther. Esther is a Jew, she's, uh, and uh, she is now qu- uh, crowned Queen of Persia. And uh, she is told to keep her identity secret. But just so you know, as we get into chapter 3, Esther, Esther's status as in power has changed quite a bit. Esther is, at this point in world history, probably now within the top 100 people of the most powerful people that lived currently in this era. She's the queen of one of the most powerful nations on the earth. And I think I need you you to understand this so you can understand the story a little bit. Um, If you were the queen of Persia, you had more political power than our current first lady. Okay? You could sign political treaties. You could do a whole bunch of stuff. You directed the economy. It was all under your authority as queen. 
And as queen, if Xerxes died, Queen Esther would have been the one that had replaced it and ruled over the empire. Okay? You got to think of it a little bit like our, the way that our Canadian structure, system is structured, right? So technically, like practically, we're an independent kind of nation, but on paper, who is, uh, who's the top dog? What's that? It's the king, right? And if the king died, the queen would take his place, not Prime Minister Trudeau. Okay? And that's sort of the way that it works here, is that Esther is, is, uh, is in a huge uh, position of power. And you also need to know that during this time, the, the, the people of Israel, the story is happening in a city far away from Jerusalem. Jerusalem is doing its own thing, and by and large, it's doing okay. Okay, it's doing its own thing. You're allowed to be Jewish at this point in the story in Persia. They're doing their own thing. They're doing well. The temple's rebuilt. It's, it's legal to worship God in this context. It's a kind of a pluralistic culture. Cyrus made a rule that, there, that as long as you paid the taxes, you could worship whatever God you want. And for most most part, we know that King Xerxes felt the same thing. So that's sort of the story so far, that's where we're going. So, just so you know and catch up. So, it's been a few years, uh, and uh, we catch up in uh, verse 1. And verse 1 in chapter 21 says that the very first thing we learn is that Mordecai now saves the king's life. It says this in uh, verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. So, that's an indication that Mordecai, the king's gate, was a place of commerce, and so that's pro- there's probably a little bit of indication here in the text that Mordecai has some sort of government job. Bigthan and Teresheh, two of the king's eunuchs were, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Hazazarus. We don't know why, uh, they just got angry with him. And this is what happened. And then this came to be the knowledge of Mordecai. So Mordecai found out about it and told Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found out to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So just a, just a note here, just so you understand. When you think of gallows, um, it's not what you think. It's, it's um, when you kind of think of the noose and sort of the wooden structure and all that kind of thing, what you really need to understand is that the gallows that it's talking about refer to some sort of primitive form of crucifixion. It's not necessarily crucifixion the way that you and I would understand it, but it's, it, it's, it's a little bit more, I'll save you the details, but that's, a, that's what's happening here in the text. So Mordecai finds out about this plan, and he saves the king, essentially. And it's written down in a record, but other than that, there is no credit for it. And then we are introduced to a man named Haman. And Haman is now promoted. It says this, After these things, King Azazarus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hadmathadiah, and advanced him and set his throne above all officials who were with him. So he's almost like, you could kind of say that, you know, he would be like the prime minister in terms of his power and responsibility. Okay? Almost second in command. 
Um, so just a note of explanation is required here. In order to make sure that all the various nations that the king of Persia ruled over remained submitted to him, the king would make sure that the various officials from all the different cultural and national groups that he ruled over had their own, who had their own nation would, would be in positions of authority so that they could feel some sense of ownership into the empire, so that they were proud of it in part. And then this man named Haman comes to uh, rise in power. Now here's where the story turns. Okay? Mordecai won't bow down to him. It says this uh, in verse uh, uh, going on in scripture. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. For the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. The king's servants who were with him at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them. They told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. Okay, so here's the story so far. Uh, Queen Esther's in power. Mordecai finds out about a plot to assassinate the king. He saves the king, gets no credit for it. A guy named Haman rises to power. And now Mordecai won't recognize or bow down to his authority. So the question then is why? Why won't, why won't Mordecai do this? Well, the text actually never really tells you. It doesn't tell you why Mordecai doesn't do it. But Bible commentators uh, have been split on this, and they give three reasons for it. And I'd like to share it with you, and while you're at home, uh, maybe you can debate whether you think uh, which one is the right one. So here are the three reasons. Number one, Mordecai wanted to be worshipped as a god. So Mordecai, or sorry, not Mordecai, Haman wanted to be worshipped as a god. So that's explanation number one. And Mordecai, who followed God, would have a problem with that, obviously. Second, Mordecai was bitter at Haman's promotion. Never got recognized for it, not until later. Or, or thirdly, there's bad blood. Now here's, here's what I would say. All, all these explanations are possible. But I would render to you that the third one is probably the most likely one. And here's, here's why I would argue that. In the text, you're actually told the ethnicity of both Mordecai and Haman. Okay? Mordecai is actually a descendant of a very famous king, King Saul. And Haman is actually a descendant of another very famous king. Does anyone want to take a guess about who that was? King Haggai. And if you know your Bible stories relatively well, you'll know that King Saul and King Haggai had an issue, didn't they? Right? And now what has happened is Mordecai and Haman, who are direct descendants of them, are fighting that same issue. If you remember uh, correctly, here's, here's what's going on in the text, okay? Is anyone who would know their Old Testament quite well would remember that there is a people called the Amalekites. We first meet them in Deuteronomy chapter 20, or sorry, all the way back in Exodus. And in that story, the Israelites have just come out of Egypt, and there's a people called the Amalekites 
who want to wipe them out of the face of the planet. Okay? And so what winds up happening is this is the story where Moses kind of raises his hands and prays, right? And he puts his hands in the air, and, he's fight, and the Israelites are fighting that battle. That's these guys, okay? And so what winds up happening is Israel wins, and then what God says later in Deuteronomy chapter 25 is that he pronounces a curse upon all the Amalekites for trying to wipe out God's people, okay? That they will be gone after all existence. You fast forward some years later, and then King Saul, Israel's first king, rises to power. Now, King Saul is famous for a couple things, but if you were to boil it down to one thing, what would you say that Saul is most famous for known for? Come on, yes. Solomon, that's Solomon. King Saul. He's most famous for not following through with God asked him to command. And you see it in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 3. God says to him, now go and strike Amalekak and devote destruction to all that they have. Do not spare them, but king both, kill, but king both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep and cattle and donkey. So this is what Saul is set out to do. And he goes out and he does it. But if you know the story, what winds up happening? He doesn't do it. He spares them. Okay? He's not fulfilling what God has asked him to do. And so here's where, here's where all this matters. Okay, Haman should have never been born. Okay? And yet he exists because of King Saul's sin. Esther's story should have never happened. Hear that very clearly. Okay? If Saul was faithful, there would have been no Amalekites, there would have been no people to come, there would have been no Haman, there would have been no issue like this. And so what happens is a guy named Haman now rises to power, and now there is a situation where both Persians and Jews are under the same nation, and this guy who is this guy who is a part of this nation who has had this death threat against the Jews for a thousand years now reigns in power and you as a Jew are now scared. Okay, That's sort of the, the subtext about what is going on here. And I just want to make a quick point on this is that in this moment Mordecai is fighting a battle Saul should have finished. Okay? This battle should have never happened. And I want to take a moment to say that the battles that you and I refuse to take part in, we force our children or the next generation to fight for us. And that is what's happening in the story. King Saul should have finished it. He didn't finish it. And now Mordecai and Esther have to deal with it. So that's sort of what is going on. Mordecai won't bow down. And then going forward, it says that Haman was filled with fury says in verse 5, And Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow or pay homage to him, and he was filled with fury. Okay. So what does he do? He decides that he is going to create a plan to kill anyone with a Hebrew heritage. 3 verse 6. Okay. And it says, But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made him known to the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom 
of Hazazarus. Okay? So then what he does is he comes up with a plan and then he goes to King uh, Xerxes or Hazarus and he lies to him. And he says that there's a group of people here that are set out and they don't follow your laws. They don't destroy you. They don't follow you. It's better that you destroy them. And here's what he does is he bribes him. He says, I will put 10,000 talents of silver into the treasury in order for you, in, if you let me kill all these people for you. Okay? And so you have to understand that, you know, the amount that he was offering to put in was probably akin to one-third of the GDP of Persia. So that's a lot of money. So he's appealing to uh, Azazarus's greed. So what winds up happening is you're like, well, how is he going to pay for it? Well, what's going to happen is he's going to set a plan of motion to destroy and eradicate all the Jews and then all the plunder that he is going to gather from all that he is going to use to pay the king. Okay. So that's the story so far. So the king agrees. And then what winds up happening is that in verse 10 it says, So the king took the signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, so do with what seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governor's and all the provinces and the officials of all the people to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of the king Hazazarus and sealed with the king's signet. Letters were sent out by courier to all the king's provinces with the instruction to destroy, kill, and annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. That day as best as Bible scholars can tell, would be in our calendar March 7th, 473 B.C. Okay. That's an important date for you to know because even to this day on March 7th, the Jews will celebrate their deliverance from this. I hope you understand what you are reading this morning. This story is no less than the most grossest, disgusting, depraved kind of evil that can ever happen. Sometimes when we come to church and we are told the Bible stories, especially one like this one, uh, we become so familiar with the story that we kind of lose the significance of what we're reading or the weightiness of what we're reading. When I read this story and when I read what is going on here, two verses come to mind. Uh, one is James chapter 1, verse 15. It talks about temptation. At the end of it, it says, sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth what? Death. Death. And then on top of that, Jesus didn't say this, but John did. First John Chapter 3, verse 15 says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. You know, I often used to think of those verses like a hyperbole, like they were an exaggeration. But after looking at this text here, I would actually tell you and I would actually say that maybe the, there, there's a literal sense in which they're true. When sin, when, when sin is fully grown, when it is 
unrestrained, when it has full control and just let loose and allowed to be its full potential. The end result is a world of death, destruction, and desolation. And I not only believe that that's a spiritual uh, thing between you and God, that's a relational thing. Your relationships are destroyed, your career is destroyed, the planet is destroyed, and every single human being on the face of the planet is dead. Sin brings forth death. And there is no better story to prove that than this one. Because this one it shows one of the deepest, darkest um, things that can happen when we let sin fully grow in our lives. <clears throat> I'm not going to show you or detail anything front for you for because it, quite frankly, <clears throat> makes me feel throwing up thinking about it. But when I read this passage in preparation, I, I started researching what they did with the Holocaust. And the things that they did were awful and sick. There's this video I watched where after the liberation of the concentration camps, <clears throat> they brought in a neighboring German town and uh, to see exactly what was going on in the camps. And uh, there's this footage. You, you, they were being lied to. All the Germans came in, and the footage is of them smiling and being happy like it's a church service, like they just walked in the door. And what they did is they, they, they brought them all around a, a coffee table, the entire town. And they had on display the various horrific things that they did. So graphic and disgusting that I'm actually thinking about throwing up right now <laughs> over it. It's evil. When I read this text, that's what's happening in the story. And actually, Haman is a little bit more... Uh, diabolical than in World War II because in World War II what they did is they kept it a secret. What Haman does is he goes and he promotes the idea, right? He goes throughout the entire land and says, I'm going to kill you. So there's like this month of terror and anticipation growing up on him. As we make, here's, as we close today, I want to make just two observations from this. Number one, this is a level of darkness that you cannot save yourself from. You need a savior. And that's what Esther is. Esther becomes the savior figure in the story. But I want to let you know too is, is that our sin is so dark and, and so <clears throat> diabolical that when it is fully grown, there is no way that you can Save yourself from it. You need a hero in your own story. You need someone to be Esther for you. And that person for us is Jesus Christ. The Jesus Christ and saves us. The other thing I, I want you to notice in this text is that these are two separate stories where people's resentment, when it was fully grown, led to murder and genocide. Do you remember when I asked you what a grudge is? What the difference between resentment and a grudge is? 
Well, simply, the dictionary would define it as this. A grudge is a resentment strong enough to justify retaliation or to settle a score. That's the difference. You have resentment, you're bitter, you're angry, and then a grudge is something more. It's something more uh, evil. It's, it's further down the road than just resentment. It's something strong enough in your heart where you want to hold on or you want to retaliate and you will retaliate. And I actually think that this is what you see in the story. Haman has allowed his resentment to morph into a grudge. Haman's resentment towards Mordecai and his people festered so long that it turned to a grudge that nearly wiped out all the Israelites on a scale that would have looked something like the Holocaust. I actually think it might have been a little bit worse because he's promoting it and celebrating it. Here's what I think that you and I would learn from this text this morning. Resentment left unchecked can do untold damage to those around us. And the only way to deal with resentment on that level is to forgive from the heart. What should have happened was they should have, they should have just parried the hatchet and learned to forgive each other. But they didn't. <clears throat> is it possible, like Haman, that you and I are holding a grudge? At one time or another in every one of our lives, we would have been shocked with the relevance of Scripture. This is one of them. It cuts like a knife through butter into our hearts. That should certainly hold true regarding the effect of evil we see in Haman's life, but the truth is, is it holds true in our lives as well. If we allow anger and grudges to fester, if we make plans for revenge, we will quite likely end up doing horrible things to each other and ourselves. Friends, never underestimate the diabolical nature of revenge. Don't underestimate your own ability to retaliate. A smoldering spirit, if not dealt with, can lead to violence and murder. When we harbor resentment in our lives, what winds up happening is that we tend not only to punish the people that hurt us, but the people that remind us of the people that hurt us too. And that is what is happening in the story. He's not only angry at Mordecai, he's angry at everyone that uh, reminds him of Mordecai, which is the Jewish people. There is another instance where this happens in the story that we covered. Does anyone remember what, where that was? Starts right in chapter 1. What does King Hazazarus do to every wife after his conflict with Vashti? He makes a law. And in that setting, you have the exact same thing happening here. You have someone who has hurt you, who has been mean to you, and you punish not only them, but the people that remind you of them. As Azariah does with all the wives of, of Persia, and Haman does it with all the people here who remind him of Mordecai, the Jewish people. Okay. And I think, you know, just on a heart level, I, can I think this helps to explain why you and I sometimes struggle or fear, pe with, uh, fear people or resent people that we have no real reason to fear or resent. Have you ever wondered that? 
that you have someone in your life that you're either scared of or you are resentful for, and you can't figure out why they've done nothing wrong, and your best option is, is that maybe that's a gut thing. Maybe it's my intuition thing. Maybe they're bad news. It's possible. Maybe they are bad news. But did you ever think that, too, they remind you of someone who is hurting, and you are passively, aggressively taking it out on them? Friends, is it possible, like, like Haman, we hold resentment strong enough to ju- justify settling score? I know that that's a, that's a loaded question, so let me, let me just kind of give you some probing questions in your heart. Please don't answer these out loud. Maybe just go home and think about them in your own devos. But is there someone whose defeat or punishment that you secretly are celebrating right now? You would never really say it out loud because you're smart enough in church not to do that. But in your heart, you're kind of like, yes, good for them. Who sins, mistakes, or failings do you daydream of posting on social media? I'm not talking about if you would do it. I'm talking about do you secretly want to do it? Or, who do you find yourself secretly desiring to publicly criticize? If there is a name that springs to mind in any of those three questions, I think that there is some resentment in your heart. And I think God's plea to you today would be to deal with it and forgive from the heart. We'll go to the next slide. Without forgiveness, friends, our resentments will go unchecked festering until they turn into a grudge. And at that moment, they are so strong that they will release an evil so dark it will do untold damage to everyone around us. Now, I'm not saying that you're going to probably do it on the level that Haman did, but I do know that bitterness and rage and holding a grudge will, will come out in some way. And in order to stop resentments in your life from escalating, you're going to need to forgive from the heart. Friend, and a, uh, friends, I'm, I'm going to close with this. Is in order for you to forgive the heart, you're going to have to know a few things. First is that forgiveness is releasing them from a payment. It's to grant a pardon. It's to release from a debt. To put it in relational terms, I would say this. Forgiveness is agreeing to absorb the cost. Part of the problem about why it's so hard to forgive is because you pay twice. The first time you're hurt, so you pay with whatever suffering that they did to you. The second time you're paying, what you're doing is you're saying, I'm going to live with the consequences without the expectation that you are going to pay me back. You're going to pay for their sins, so you pay twice. Forgiveness is not forgiving. Forgiveness is a choice. And I promise you that nobody feels like forgiving. Forgiveness is an act of the will. And if you have bitterness against any, pretty much anyone, it means that you don't want to forgive them. You can actually take steps to forgive them if you want to. Forgiveness means is that you're willing to pay the price. It means to say, yes, I was wounded, but I'm not going to hold it against you. 
I'm going to give up my perceived right to seek revenge. Forgiveness means that I'm going to give up my perceived right to hold this over that person's head. Forgiveness means that I'm going to give up my perceived right to hold this over anyone else's head that reminds me of this person. Forgiveness means that I won't hold this against this all people, no matter what race or gender. I'm going to give up my perceived right to be paid back. It's not that you shouldn't be paid back. It's that you are giving up the right to blame this person for why you're unhappy today. That's hard. But can I tell you something, friends? If there is someone in your life that you are finding hard to forgive, that you are allowing to fester, I I really want you to be careful of that because if you leave it too long, it will turn into a grudge, something strong enough to retaliate. And God's answer to that is forgiveness. Can I encourage, and if you are finding that hard, can I just encourage you with something? Jesus will never ask you to forgive something that he himself is not willing to forgive. Let that sit in for a minute. Jesus will never ask you personally to forgive someone that he personally isn't willing to forgive either. You want to know why I know that? Because Jesus already forgave it. He died on the cross for everybody's sins. That you and I can live a life where we don't have to hold on to our grudges. So that's the story so far. Esther is now in a position where her life is threatened because a man has held a grudge for a really long time. Well, what happens? You're just going to have to come out and find out next week. So so I'm just going to call Val up here and I'm going to pray for us as she comes up. Father, thank you for today. And I am so grateful for your word as we go through Esther. And I know, God, that there are some times where it is hard to forgive, where I want to hold on to that that resentment. But I am so thankful for the cross of Jesus Christ because I know that you have already forgiven them. And because you have forgiven them, I can find it within, I can find it in myself to ask for your help to forgive them too. So I pray, God, that we would be a church that would not hold any grudges, that we would not allow our resentments to turn into something that where we can retaliate, but something that shows the glory and honor of you. In Jesus' name, everybody said.